we want everyone to benefit from and drive this transition. So that is our goal, but we have to work on every single, um, really every single solution that we have at hand. Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass area dial at 102.9. Welcome in here today for another Making Sense of Climate session with my guide and local activist, Ted McIntyre. Ted, welcome. Steve, how you doing? Good to be here. I'm doing well, and we've got some visitors with us today. This is exciting. We had a big day today. Yes, we have two knowledgeable guests that are advocates for a clean energy future, and I will introduce them momentarily. But I guess I wanted to briefly set up our discussion, uh, put this this discussion in the context of all the other things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Right, the famous roadmap. The famous roadmap. So Massachusetts has a roadmap, which is a fancy word for plan for the state to achieve good things in climate, right? To do the right thing as regards to climate. Part of that uh, mission is to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions by 50% by the year 2030. So that's a good thing, right? It's And all of our discussion has been around the implementation of legislation and policies that implement that goal. Right? So we've had wrong. lots of talk, right? <laughs> but how are we going to do this? What's wrong with the way they're doing it? I mean, all the usual things when, you, when you're trying to execute a plan. One of the big features of the plan, in order to get to a 50% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions, which, dear listener, you will remember, carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas that causes global warming, right? We need to reduce that. One of the ways to do that, and an important way to do that, is to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the what's called the built environment, which is, again, a fancy way of saying reduce the carbon dioxide emissions from your home. And most of those carbon dioxide emissions come from things like burning natural gas to heat your home, cook your food, and dry your clothes, right? You start thinking about it, say, yeah, my house, my home is emitting carbon dioxide all the time because of these things. What's really interesting is that in order to achieve the goal the state set out, the state needs to basically change, retrofit a million homes, right? Which is a tall order, right? How are we ever going to do that over the next 10 years, retrofitting a million homes so that they don't emit carbon? Well, one of the ways forward has been to, to say, gee, at least with new construction, new homes, that we should not install natural gas because we already know natural gas is a bad, uh, you know, to heat your home with natural gas is a bad thing. And if you build a home in 2022, it's still going to be standing in 2050. Why would you even think about putting natural gas into it? Fine. Again, this is all aligned with the roadmap. There's this wonderful town up outside of Boston called Brookline, which took it upon itself to ban the use of natural gas in new construction. So it's a rather constrained kind of thing. I mean, it's only new construction. It's not like we're forcing old buildings to retrofit and come back to that kind of thing later. Anyway, Brookline decided in its wisdom that it would not allow new gas hookups to be made for new construction. Past that in the venerable town hall, you know, town meeting tradition in Massachusetts, uh, subsequently, Attorney General 
Healy was forced to basically stop that process because of a home rule petition or home home rule rules, right? They, they, the town can't do it without the state allowing them, et cetera. A lot of sort of legal arcane stuff. But it comes back to the question of how is Massachusetts going to get everything aligned so that all of our policies, all of our effort gets us to this goal. Then subsequently, so you get Brookline gets stopped from having this ban on new gas hookups to homes, then the state in the roadmap at the same time has this thing called the net zero building code, which we hope would ban natural gas statewide in new construction. And of course, you, Steve, you and I talked about mm-hmm. all the vagaries there that you know they didn't quite do the right thing and it's going to come around again in June, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's still in draft, still being commented, although the comments are being re-wrecked into the draft, and we haven't seen the next version yet. Right. What happens? Well, in the latest turn of the screw, the legislature has said, we're going to let 10 communities, six of which have already want to do this groundbreaking, leading-edge thing of banning natural gas in new hookups. There is a part of the latest legislation that would explicitly allow that so that 10 communities, including Brookline, I think it's Concord and a couple others, can, if they choose to, make this really aggressive, good building code for new buildings. That brings us to our guests. Yeah, our just guests. one other <laughs> setup. I think the the legislation reference, I believe, is on the Senate side, yes. not the House side. The House side tend to focus on the wind side. Both of those have now been passed by the respective bodies. Both of those will be coming at some point to that conference committee we've also talked yeah, about, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. hopefully get resolved. But in the meantime, we just want to find out, okay, what's that other, what's the implications yeah. of the other piece? So that's what we're doing here today. I mean, the, the climate roadmap is kind of like a, a civics lesson, right? You learn how how bills are made. We've been talking about the conference committee and the Senate passing and all this stuff. Anyway, it turns out that activists in Brookline have started a new nonprofit called ZeroCarbonMA.org. And we have two of the co-founders of that new nonprofit with us today. They are Lisa Cunningham and Dr. Wendy Stahl, who are with us to discuss the what's going on. Uh, and so let me open the floor. Uh, uh, Lisa, Wendy, I told this long sort of <laughs> gas bag story about uh, all the stuff that's happening. Can you correct me? Did I get the story right? What's important thing as it relates to new natural gas hookups to new construction that people should know about? That was just a fabulous, fabulous introduction, Ted. Thank you so much. This is Lisa Cunningham talking and Mm -hmm. um, uh, nice, very nice to be here with you and Stephen today. Um, Really appreciate your time. And thank you for the fabulous intro, very and very informative and very on point. I can just start with saying, uh, putting everything that you just said in a little bit of context, um, there's the two most important things that we need to do for climate today is number one, we need to stop burning stuff. And number two, we have to make, stop making new expenditures that burn stuff. So everything we purchase today, now, needs to be, but it's not, it's not something we're burning. It has to be fossil fuel free. We can't be installing equipment that's designed to last 30 years 
when we know that that's well past the point that we need to be fossil fuel free. It doesn't make any sense from a climate point of view. It doesn't make any sense from a fiscal point of view. It doesn't make any sense from a health point of view. It's really doesn't make any economic sense, any sense in any way for our, our future. So I think just very, very simply, we can't, we have to stop burning stuff and we can't buy any more infrastructure. And that includes, as you pointed out, our buildings, which in Massachusetts represent 40% of our carbon emissions. Um, in some towns that are more urban, such as Boston, it's over 80%. Yeah. But, um, but in, and in more and less urban towns, um, it, it might be slightly less. But overall in Massachusetts, it's 40%. So our buildings are a very important sector that we are, we're focusing on. We, just to quickly review our bylaw, in um, 2019, Brookline passed a bylaw, which you referenced, um, which was prohibiting fossil fuel infrastructure and new construction and major renovations. Um, and then we passed that as a home rule petition, which really asked the uh, state legislature for the authority to pass our bylaw, even though, as you mentioned, um, it was found to have conflicted with legacy state laws. So since that, um, we actually have had six other communities who have filed home rule petitions. So it's uh, the, there's seven who have filed to this date, and they include Arlington, Brookline, Lexington, Acton, Concord, Cambridge, and Newton. And Lisa, uh, if I could just interrupt, when you say seven communities have filed, say again explicitly what they have filed for. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they have filed for... Um, they have submitted home rule petitions um, that would enable um, these communities to um, have mandate uh, fossil fuel free construction in new in new construction and major renovations. And all of these communities pass these bylaws with um, very careful exemptions, a very careful waiver process, um, and with over overwhelming votes. So for example, in Brookline, obviously everybody was concerned about the cost. These votes, votes passed, we, we learned that this is uh, practical and this is cost effective, particularly at the time of new construction mm -hmm. and major renovations. Right. And um, in contrast, when we have to go back and retrofit these buildings, which is what you were talking about with the 1 million, um, with the mil 1 million homes by 2030, I'm actually an architect, which I might not have, um, uh, you, you might not have known. I'm an architect and we do decarbonize uh, homes for clients as well as build new fossil fuel free um, homes for clients. And it's significantly more expensive to decarbonize um, existing infrastructure than it is to just build it right correctly the first time. Doing it correctly the first time is cost neutral and operationally it costs less to heat um, and cool on an annual basis. We did a house about a year ago and it was um, cost $1,000 um, last year to heat and cool for the entire year. So this is, um, th but just to go back to the fact that these, these um, bylaws passed with overwhelming votes in their communities. And the, you know these communities are very concerned about the bottom line. Um, they're very concerned about making equitable and just um, solutions for um, everybody in their community about ushering in an equitable and just transition. 
And that's why um, that's why these votes were so overwhelming, because in reasons of cost and fiscal responsibility and reasons of health and reasons of the climate, all these things are aligning. This is very, very practical. We have to stop. What we're saying is we have to stop digging the hole deeper. And right now, we, um, you know, the, the state, as you pointed out, has a goal of being 50 percent. Um, 50% uh, reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. Right now, we're still heading in the wrong direction. So that's not, we, we have to stop digging the hole deeper. And then we also have to, as you suggested, we have to um, start decarbonizing and doing the harder work. Sounds good. And Wendy, I think you bring some of that health perspective through this. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. This is Wendy Stahl. Um, I also am a part of Zero Carbon MA with Lisa. And uh, in my former life, I uh, was a physician. And it's really important not just to think about the climate um, necessity of stopping to install fossil fuel burning infrastructure, but really of the benefits that it gives us when we make our buildings all electric. Um, you know, we're all familiar with how, uh, with the air pollution that's caused by big factories and oil refineries, you know, spewing their, their burning fuels into the air. But what most of us don't realize is that we have similar levels of pollution in our own homes. Essentially, every gas burning appliance we put in our homes is installing a gas leak. And I don't mean a potential gas leak. I mean an actual current gas leak. It's shocking. But these scientists at Stanford last year, um, or maybe earlier this year, published a, an eye-opening study on gas stoves. I don't know if you are familiar with it. Um, yeah, but they found that... <laughs> gas stoves first, they emit high amounts of pollutants, nitrogen dioxide, particulate matter, carbon monoxide that often exceed outdoor air standards. But the most horrific thing about this study was that the majority of these pollutants were emitted when the stoves were off, completely off. So beyond the pilot light that a gas stove everybody's familiar with, or if the pilot goes out, you've got to relight it and then do that carefully, of course. But so beyond that, there's still the leak. There's still the leak because it's it's impossible to fully secure these these fittings. I mean, the, the plumbers do excellent jobs. I'm not saying they're not doing their job, but just by the, the fact that it's a gas, I mean, hmm. it can find its way out of the smallest holes. So what what we know is that having gas burning appliances in our homes causes pollution. What we also know is that this pollution is associated with increased rates of asthma. And in um, cooking with gas specifically, in homes that have gas stoves, there is a 42% increased rate of asthma in children compared to um, not having a gas stove. That's the same risk associated with having a smoker in the home. Mm. Wow. N I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I, I choose not to smoke because of the health risks. I didn't know that having a gas stove in my home was the equivalent health risk. Yeah, I don't want that. Nobody wants that for their children. This is, 
I mean, in Massachusetts, did you know one out of eight children actually have an asthma diagnosis? It's an epidemic, an asthma epidemic that we have the power to influence by not one allowing any one, yeah, one, one in eight. eight? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And asthma is a debilitating, debilitating disease. And it's frightening to be a parent of a child with asthma who can't breathe. Right. I mean, it is it is frightening. Yeah. But we have the power to reduce these numbers by getting gas stoves out of people's homes. So that's one benefit, you know, of, <laughs> of I'm going. sure multiple. <laughs> if I could just just b- b- before you go to the uh, whatever other benefits there are, let me just say that I recently bought um I still have the gas stove in place, but I bought an induction hot plate where you I did. Can, most of my cook most of the cooking on that. And I you know, maybe it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or a bias or something, but it seems to me that you do, you smell less stuff. I mean, there's less heavy air when you use the induction cooking than when you have the gas stove on. And I mean, so, I mean, the, it's pretty clear to me that there is something going on with the emission from burning the natural gas makes these kind of pollutants that float around your house. And then the gas itself I think the thing the thing that I saw said that every time you turn the stove on or off, there's this few parts of half a second or so before the flame strikes that you're emitting yes. gas and just raw and natural gas into your home. I mean, it's astounding when you, and of course, once you start thinking about it, you say, of course. I mean, the the plumber installed the gas stove ten years ago, and I fully believe that all those those valve connections are absolutely leak tight and never never have allowed any kind of so. I think your point is well made. And you, you're, I mean, it's, it's not like in your basement, you're standing right over the stove, you know, you're inhaling it directly. So just for whoever's listening, I want to advise you to have the exhaust fan on at all times when you are cooking on a gas stove. I also as a solution, just to say, I cooked for two years on the type of induction cook plate that you're talking about, Ted. And it plugs into a regular outlet. So not everybody can replace their gas stove. It's sometimes, um, that's again, why we wanna do it correctly the first time because replacing even a gas stove with an induction um, stove can be expensive because there aren't the right electrical hookups. There might not be the right electrical capacity. But one, uh, these, these cook plates you can buy um, on Amazon for about 50 bucks and you can buy a set of pots and pans for about 50 bucks as well. And um, I cooked for two years on one and my asthma, I have had severe asthma my entire life and my asthma disappeared. And it was pretty, it's pretty amazing. Um, but these gas appliances are not just in your, in your um, not just in your kitchen, they're also in your basement. Again, as an architect, I go to people's basements all the time. And now that I'm not exposed to gas, the second I go in a basement, I'm like, what's, what's leaking? There's a gas mm. leak in here. And it's like, no, there's not a gas leak. There's just a gas furnace and it's in, and it's in the basement. So um, if you at least if you allow me to geek out a little bit further for yeah. just a minute, I think that you're right to, to, to point out that you can relatively cheaply avoid turning on the gas stove a lot of the time by getting one of these little cook plates that allow you to do half of your cooking on this little cook plate. It just plugs into the wall. And to go one one step further, if you take a kitchen magnet 
that's from your refrigerator and touch it to your various pots and pans, if the kitchen magnet sticks to a pan that you already have, you already have the induction compatible pot to cook in. So, I mean, it's, it's very accessible stuff that people should be aware of. Right, that they can get stove and make the change without a lot of troubles. So I will stop there since we don't need to go too far <laughs> down this rabbit hole. It's also better. It's also boils water faster. It's yeah. more. It's easier to control. Um, it's a more even temperature, um, and you can also use cast iron pans. A lot of people have cast iron pans in their pantry and or in their cook set, and that's a um, another alternative. But yes, thanks, Ted. It's one of my go-to pans is the cast iron one. So that's good. Yes. Yes. And they last forever if, if well taken care of. We've gone quite on this um, cooking sidetrack, but you know, our homes don't only have stoves that burn gas. We have mm -hmm. uh, heaters, we have dryers, we have water heaters. Um, you know, it's our stoves that really only mm -hmm. account for a small percentage of the gas that we're burning in our homes. And so when you think of, well, okay, Brookline wants to have a gas ban, so new construction can't burn gas. Well, what are they going to do to heat their homes? What are they going to do for hot water? What, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. Turns out it's, it's so easy and so great, and it's called a heat pump. We've um, talked about heat pumps once or twice, and I think that's coming becoming a recurring theme. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, heat pumps are the way of the future. Um, everyone who doesn't even know what the word heat pump means is familiar with a heat pump because we have one in all of our refrigerators and freezers. It um, it essentially sucks the heat out of one space and pumps it into the other space. So if you ever notice when you're standing near your refrigerator, there's hot air blowing out somewhere behind it or underneath mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, Which is also why you need to keep it a couple of inches away from the wall to give it that airflow. Yes. So heat pumps can be used um, in sort of any direction. Your air conditioner has a heat pump in it, sucks the heat out of your home, blows it outside. Turns out you can flip that direction, suck the heat from outside and blow it into your home. And ta-da, you've got a heater. Heat pumps are extremely efficient at producing heat. They're up to five times as efficient as gas-powered heaters. Um, and they can be used in water heaters. And they can even be used in clothes dryers. Um, anywhere where you want to take heat from one place and put it someplace else, a heat pump is perfect for that. Um, and it provides all electric heating and cooling. Um, you don't need any gas to power it, just like your air conditioner and refrigerator. You just plug them in. Um, you don't need to have gas pumped into them. So on the electric piece, one of the things that from a Franklin specific perspective, we have a municipal aggregation and our contract currently is for wind powered electricity and at a cheaper rate for the next I think we're in the middle of the three-year contract. So we're already cheaper than what we would normally be getting from national grid, et cetera, for our regular electricity. So by using a heat pump, replacing the gas and using the electricity powered from the wind, that actually is a better green sustainable solution and the best way to go at this point, it sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, we, we absolutely need, this is the reason why we need to go all electric is because only electricity can be carbon free. So only electricity, uh, electricity is produced by wind turbines and it's produced by solar panels. 
um, in general, and, and it can be, um, it's what we call green electricity. And so only electricity can be carbon free. Fossil fuels emit carbon and are destroying our, our planet. So this is why we wanna to move to all electric. And also to your point about being on a community aggregation program, it's fantastic because as people, people who had gas this past winter and oil and propane saw significant price increases, whereas people on a, in a community choice electricity program saw no increases, as you pointed out. Um, and the electricity prices, it, even if you weren't in a community choice electricity program, remain very stable this past winter compared to um, gas prices. Gas prices are also going to continue to go up because we have um, a very old and leaky pipe, pipe infrastructure, which you may have talked about in another program, which uh, needs repair and replacement. And so the ratepayers are going to bear the cost of that um, pipe, pipe replacement. Gas is only going to get more and more expensive, um, aside from the fact that we shouldn't be using it. The costs are going to continue to rise. And so um, from a cost point of view, um, everybody should also be interested in, uh, in not building new infrastructure with um, fossil fuels. I just wanted to make sort of two things. And, and Lisa, I wanted to sort of repeat it because you we need to say this a thousands and thousands of times for it to sink in, but the concept is to electrify your home. Everything, you stop burning anything in your home, electrify everything is the phrase. Everything. So home, home electrification is the buzzword that we toss around. And your transportation too, you know. Wendy, to your point, I just wanted to, again, go back to the, I love your reference to the refrigerator as a heat pump uh, and how I think I wanted to say specifically that for people who think about it very much, that if you're going to heat your home, the big question is on a cold day, will it work well enough? Right. And yes. the design of the heat, I mean, the heat pump, even on a freezing cold day, there is enough heat in the air outside of your home for this, this heat pump to collect that heat, even though it's 10 degrees outside, you can collect heat from that air and pump it into your home. So it's not like it has to be hotter outside than the inside in order for the heat pump to work. In fact, it works. Well, you, you can say more, yes. but just make that very clear that on a cold day, it's still, the physics is still there, right? It's counterintuitive, but even if it's negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit outside, you do not need any other system to heat your home. A heat pump is effective. I mean, Massachusetts has done studies on this. In our Massachusetts climate, a heat pump is all you need. You might hear people say, oh, you should keep your fossil fuel system just as a backup. You might want a hybrid system. Well, hybrid, while it sounds you know, new like and great, like hybrid cars originally were, they still rely on fossil fuels and we need to be cutting them out. But it's not even like you're making a sacrifice because they. how frequently is the temperature less than negative 15 degrees? Yeah. Never. And if it is, they have a backup electric resistance heating system that kicks in. So your house is never cold. Right. And that's the key point, because unfortunately, one of the other things that if we haven't got to, we will be getting to is obviously, and I know we've talked specifically about the varieties of weather and the extremes. We're getting more and more extreme because of the climate change, because we're still burning the fossils, et cetera. So, yeah, while minus 15 may come, certainly it comes with wind chill. Plus, <laughs> we're not at risk to that extent. We'll still have a warm house. No matter and what, Steve, you can count just on. to 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 jump on this one last one last thing. 
the heat pump also acts as an air conditioner. Right, Wendy? I mean, yes. so in the, when it yeah. does get hot, you just reverse the direction. Now you're pumping the heat out of your house and life is good. If you don't have an air conditioner now, you get one. But it's easier. I heard you say you reverse the direction. As the user, you don't do anything except set the thermostat. The machine oh, does it all itself. Super. You choose the Super. temp you want to operate at. Yeah. 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 And also in terms of, again, getting back to our bylaw and um, that when you put in a new system, you're only putting in one system. So right now, when you install um, what we call architecturally an HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning system, you have to install, if you're using fossil fuels, you're installing a fossil fuel system for your um, furnace or boiler, and then you're installing an electric system for your air conditioner. Air conditioners are always um, all electric. Mm -hmm. This actually, you're only installing one system that does everything. So it's it's very simple, it's very easy. And actually I my house um, runs on a heat pump and we switched from, um, from heating to cooling the other day. And in fact, I've got two, uh, one system for my first and second floor and another for my third. And I can have heating on my first and second and cooling on my third. And so it's just, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's very versatile, very flexible. Already our cooling is all electric. So when people aren't familiar with the fact that their, you know, that their uh, house is being operated with electricity, already people have air conditioning are are operating with electricity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'll make one minor add to that because I think to a certain extent, many houses actually have three systems, if you will, because there's the third for the hot water heater. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think to the point, and I, one of you mentioned it, the uh, hot water can actually be done with the heat heat pump as well. Exactly. Aside from that, the other piece I'd like to get back to is in terms of the bylaw and what it does. So in clarification, you said on new build, um, having driven through Brookline, it seems to be fairly developed. How many new build properties would this bylaw actually affect? Uh, do you have a calculation on that? Has that been mentioned? I'm sure it may have been mentioned somewhere in the discussion. Well, one thing that was um, significant about our bylaw is that we actually included significant renovations. And so it's new construction and major renovations. And so as an, again, as an architect, um, we do do a lot of gut renovations because it, there is old housing stock, but in a lot of cases it's deteriorated, it needs to be improved. And the heating and cooling system or the, their cooling system is non-existent and the heating system needs to be upgraded. Right. So at the point of major construction, when you are already ripping out your fossil fuel system, that is when um, it is cost effective to upgrade. And that is what our bylaw says. And again, um, every town and city's um, bylaws have uh, certain uh, practical exemptions. They have a waiver process as well for for certain things that might not be, um, you know, uh, worked out, but but it's very carefully thought out. But yes, it's it does include um, it does include major renovations. Yeah, yeah. Um, for minor renovations, that is a uh, that is more difficult, um, simply because it's um, it costs more, and that's why we have said that we really need to start with the low hanging fruit, which mm -hmm. is 
not installing any brand new infrastructure. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I know one of the things, at least from a local governmental process discussion, the Franklin downtown train station, for example, MBTA keeps saying they won't re won't renovate it because every time they every time they would go to touch it, they spend more than a certain dollars, and they also have to bring it to ADA compliance. So the, the question here is, what's that major minor break? Is there a dollar focus on that or is it percent of the project or? It's percent of the project. And um, for Brookline, it's 50% of the project for commercial and 75% uh, for, um, for residential. residential. And um, in other communities, it was 50% for both commercial and residential. One thing I will say is that we went to do our bylaw um, the first organization to support us in our town was our Brookline Housing Authority, um, which manages all our affordable housing. Sure. And affordable housing is leading the way in the state of Massachusetts, as well as in Brookline. And our Brookline Housing Authority had already gone all electric, in fact, and they were already retrofitting all their buildings to be all electric. And they are every single 40B project in Brookline. Um, is doing passive house, which is another building standard and all electric. So throughout the state of Massachusetts, affordable housing is actually leading the way. And this is great because this opportunity and advantage of having a better, a healthier building um, and, um, and a building that won't need to be retrofitted, this needs to be afforded to all our residents and every community. And so um, we were really um, happy to learn that this was the case in Brookline and we've observed this throughout the state. I do want to add to that. This is Wendy now. Um, it's a truth, an unfortunate truth that people of color are exposed to more health harming air pollution than white people are. The more we can do to reduce the air pollution, the, the better that uh, low and middle income communities and environmental justice communities will be. We need these rules, not just for, you know, you hear Brookline, you might think wealthy white people, right? But we're not doing this for wealthy white people. We are doing this because the people who will be most affected are the ones that traditionally loud, strongly heard voices that are respected. Mm -hmm. um, and by Massachusetts currently allowing fossil fuel construction in EJ, environmental justice and low and middle income communities, by allowing that construction, the, the state knows that these buildings will need to be retrofitted in the very near future, the, before the lifespan of the new appliances are even reached. And these retrofits are, as Lisa was explaining, way more expensive than building fossil fuel free to begin with. And who's going to be born with those costs? Mm. You know, Winnie, I, I think that's an excellent uh, point. And I guess I was going to bring us back to what is the, the, the state of play, for a better word, in Massachusetts as far as we've talked a lot about individual towns and the virtues of electric home electrification in the individual towns and these bylaws that that mandate that new and major retrofits will be all electrified. What is the where does we stand at the state level? And what should people know about it that maybe don't live in Brookline? Why should they care? Yes, this is a statewide issue. Um, as Lisa or I, one of us mentioned, um, there are seven communities in Brookline that have passed local legislation of this sort. 
but none of them have been able to have it implemented yet because it's in conflict with existing existing regulations. Yep. Um, existing regulations, yeah, that that protect the gas industry essentially. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Which has been one of our themes as well. So that's okay. We're just reinforcing the steps along the roadmap in terms of getting there. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, the the Senate did produce, uh, you know, their climate bill called the Drive Act, which had a provision in it that would allow 10 communities in Massachusetts to enact gas bans on new construction, which is, you know, what we've been hoping for. Um that bill, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, is currently in conference with the House's offshore wind bill. They're hoping to make uh, a final combined bill um, that will help the climate this, this legislative session. What we hope is that that final climate bill will include this provision for 10 towns to lead the way and be a testing ground for the rest of the state for becoming fossil fuel free with the new construction. In other words, you're saying there are 10 towns, oh, well, there are seven towns that have self-selected and three slots, so to speak, that the state, the, the, leg- the Senate has considered to be the vanguard of this and basically pilot the elimination of gas in new construction and major retrofits, right? I mean, and that's that's what's at stake. There, there's a chance Correct. to allow this to move forward uh, in spite of sort of, I won't call them blue laws, but, you know, laws that are already in place. Yes, right, I think that's that's just an excellent summary from, from, from you, Ted, and also obviously from Wendy. I mean, an excellent summary of what's going on. And so it's really, I mean, these communities are, I would say that they're the first movers. I would say that this isn't really, none of this technology is new. Um, Heat pumps have been around for a long time. Um, They're in use all over the world. They're very well established. um, So this is not new technology. This is not an experiment. This is is just widespread accepted technology, but we do um, need to push the construction industry to establish this as their standard. And we need to stop making, as we said, stop digging the hole deeper, stop making the problem worse. And we need to, we have a very, um, we have a code red according to the UN IPCC. We have to stop using fossil fuels immediately. We have a climate emergency. We, We have an urgent, urgent problem and we need to be acting on every single possible front we can. So we can't wait for each individual state agency to come up with the right solution. It's just gonna, it's just taking too long. So for the communities that have already self-identified as being overwhelmingly um, in favor of wanting to enact these policies in their own town, have gone through a rigorous rigorous uh, process with overwhelming votes, we need to let those communities uh, move forward, and then they can be um, examples for the rest of the state. They can provide data for the rest of the state. They can be workforce force training for the rest of the state. Um, and we also, as I said, we everyone we want everyone to benefit from and drive this transition. So that is our goal. But we have to work on every single. Um, really every single solution that we have at hand, we need to, to grasp very quickly. And so 
we're hoping actually that listeners today um, will um, speak, take the opportunity to speak with their representatives um, and ask their representatives to um, speak with um, members of the conference committee, which are listed and which we can give you a copy of, and express to them the urgency of passing this legislation. We really can't delay anymore. We have to start, we have to stop digging the hole deeper. We have to start moving in the right direction. And we've only got eight years to reduce our carbon emissions by 50%. We have to do everything we possibly can. I want to add to what Lisa just said uh, with the fact that we, she said we can't wait any longer. I know that the Department of Energy Resources was tasked with creating a building code to accomplish just this. It was supposed to be a net zero building code. You mentioned that you'd had another episode discussing um, this, I believe, and how the unfortunate first draft of this building code did not um, make it fossil fuel free. They actually, the proposal allowed gas to still be used. Um, and so that's just a perfect example of how we can't wait for the state to um, come up with a uniform solution for everybody because that, that might never happen. And there are communities that are ready to move forward now that will help us, as Lisa said, stop digging the hole deeper. And we need to let those communities do what they and the rest of us know is necessary. The request or the action that people can take that care about this is to contact their state representative and ask that state representative to encourage this small, what's called the, uh, the, 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 the conference committee, the conference committee, right? Sorry. Mm-hmm. That, that, that these, there, there are, so as it stands right now, there are five or six, it's usually six, six uh, uh, legislators from the Senate and the three and three. Three and three, and they're in a dark room somewhere in the basement of the state house, (laughs) right? Talking about this and deciding what's in and what's out, right? And it's happening now, literally, because they'll have a big vote palooza in July sometime when they run out of time in the session, right? The time is now to contact your state representative, ask that person to support this the the 10 town is there a is there a title for this thing is there a specific name it's actually called um section 65 okay and um, we will send we will give you a link we have a um a really comprehensive um faq on this and so we will give you a link so your listeners can look at this it's actually a, like a primer on building electrification so it's a really fun document and we will give that to you um and so yes to just it's very important process that your representatives um, represent you. And so you wanna call them and let you, them know what's on your mind. And then you want to ask them to call the members of this conference committee. And again, we can give you that information. We can tell you who those people are. And we want, that, we want people to let their reps know that this ver- it's very important to them that this provision be passed because honestly, what we want is the ability to for every community to do this. Um, So Massachusetts has these legacy laws set in place, but for example, in California, they're not the same legacy laws. So California has been able to pass, um, you know, over 40 of these these basically home rule petitions or gas prohibitions. Uh Um, But because of Massachusetts legacy laws, we haven't been able to do that. So that's why we're going this 
other route um, of home rule petitions. Any community can also pass a home rule petition. And we would also urge them to do that. And we'd be happy to give you, again, people can contact us and we can tell them how to do that. And um, there are lots of communities who are busy right now um, trying to pass their own home rule petitions. So you're saying I, I, the message there, if, if Franklin wants to get on this bus, we've got to start start running, right? <laughs> start start but, running because, but you know what? Even the more communities that pass this, I think what 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 is happening is that the state legislature then starts to understand the urgency of this, and they start to understand that the will of the people that they cannot put down the will of the people. And the other thing that happens is when you do community outreach in your community and you have a campaign to do a home rule um, petition, you actually have to um, really inform your constituency. And in that process, people learn a lot about building electrification. They learn a lot about the issues that we've been talking about today. And they understand why we have to electrify everything and why we have to stop burning stuff. And that's a very, very important message. Indeed it is. And from a Franklin perspective, I know we're heavily into kind of at a step above this still. We're not quite into the building code level. We're looking at the downtown zoning because of the other MPTA community initiatives that the governor is out uh, advocating for, et cetera. So we've got a major project looking at our downtown zoning, making it more walkable, more affordable. Clearly, these are related. It's it's hard to slice where they cross and where they stop, um, but we're just not at that level yet. But I certainly thank you for helping me understand because that's one of our goals is to better understand what's going on. What does this mean? How do we do this? So, and then to reinforce. So, wait, I don't want to discourage Franklin and or any town or city that's not ready to take this action this year. The the just because there are 10 municipalities on the table right now for this current bill doesn't mean that you shouldn't be one of the 11th or 12th or 13th that also passes this eventually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what you're saying too um, is that this is all related. We've also been working on zoning initiatives in, um, in many uh, towns and cities throughout Massachusetts because it, it is all related. So when you're doing your zoning zoning initiatives, you also wanna think about the, all these buildings that you're building should be fossil fuel free for the exact same reason. So um, it's, it's all intertwined, but yes, um, each community has to do this at their, own, um, you know, at their own pace, but it's actually, we have so much data and so, so many materials and there's been so many who have now already done this, that each community that does this now has a, an easier lift and has also more people that can help guide guide the way, lead the way. I was just going to reinforce too. I know you've mentioned representatives, but technically there are rep- representatives and senators. They're both parts of the legislation. So if you don't know your representative, but you know your senator, by all means, contact either or both <laughs> so that they can work through their respective channels. Because as we mentioned to reinforce on the conference committee, to the best of my knowledge, it's six, three reps from uh, three representations from both the Senate and from the House. 
uh, that will ultimately come back with whatever this compromise is at some point. Ideally, they will come back. <laughs> um, that's at least the gist that I've heard through other channels. Both sides clearly have taken the initiative to do something. They both have an initiative to actually get it together. And thank you for helping at least understand, okay, what does that side really want here? How does this happen, et cetera? So. Now you're exactly right what you said. That's exactly accurate. And I was saying representatives in the broad sense of the word, but you're absolutely True. right. We have senators and we have re representatives and you, I never knew this until a few years ago, but yes, you should get to know your representatives and your senators, and you should be talking with them as much as, as possible, because guess what? They listen to the people who talk to them. They listen to the people who make noise. So we have to make noise and we have to tell them what we want. And so, yeah, but yeah, your assessment of, of what's going on right now is spot on. Anything else to add, Ted? I think this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate uh, uh, Wendy and Lisa come, coming, joining us to talk about this. I think it's an important topic and it's one more sort of brick in the wall, brick in the structure, not brick in the wall. That's a little too uh, yeah. Pink Floyd-y, right? We're, we're <laughs> building, a, we're building a, the, the, the roadmap. Maybe it's a cobblestone in the road, in the road that, that we're building to a clean future. Or maybe I, I just won't smooth the way on the road, not to make cobblestone bumpy, bumpy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't struggle for metaphor there. Uh, <laughs> just uh, leave it. <laughs> it's been great having you guys uh, with us today. It's wonderful. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's this has been a lot of fun and really appreciate talking with both of you. Thank you for your fantastic questions and the opportunity to um, be here with you today and, and also with your listeners. And we'll um, give you lots of links and lots of materials. And we'd be happy to um, have people follow up with us individually, they email us individually. We can help out on pretty much anything. We can um, lead people in the right direction. So we're, um, we'd just be very excited to be in touch and get feedback from people. And also, please support Section 65 of the Senate Drive Act. And please call your representative and your senator. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. And so my thanks to both of you as well for participating, certainly to Ted as well for helping facilitate this. And to you listeners for uh, following along on this journey as we try to make sense of climate. And we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.